Greetings, my name is Blake Schmida, alongside Leo Manchetti, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Navy Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. On today's episode, we are joined by Paul Miklashek, former United States Army Inspector General and Distinguished Paratrooper. Paul, welcome to the American Valor Podcast. Well, thanks, Blake. Glad to be here and glad we could make this work. It's a real honor to do this. Absolutely. So I'll just go ahead and kick off with a pretty simple question. You served in the U.S. Army for 36 years. Can you describe where you found the motivation and dedication to serve your country for that long? Well, that's a good question because it evolves over time. Certainly, when I first came in, I had intended to make the Army a career. Of course, you have ups and downs and things change throughout the course of a life that long. But I really liked what I did. I liked the people I was working with. We had a good purpose in life, a good mission. As I look back, it was really being able to be part of something bigger than yourself uh, and to serve a good cause. And I got to do some really interesting things with a lot of really great people. Certainly had some challenges and hard tasks along the way, but it was all, all worthwhile. So I think the motivation to be around soldiers, to be around a useful mission and purpose, to have some hard jobs come my way all made it interesting, and uh, I wouldn't have done it any other way. What was the most valuable lesson you've learned after 36 years of military service? Well, it all has to do with uh, taking care of people, understanding people, because that's how you get things done. And what I learned pretty early, both from my bosses, from my peers, and the soldiers that I served with, is that uh, you have to really be committed, first and foremost, to taking care of your people, which doesn't necessarily mean being kind or nice to them all of the time, but certainly respectful, setting high standards, demanding their they do their part of the job, but understanding their motivations, what they what they need. And then I think what I learned is that what people expect of their leaders, what the soldiers expect of their leaders, and it's actually somewhat simple, but hard to do like anything. They, they really expect their leaders to be competent and technically and tactically competent to know what they're doing. And then they expect to be treated fairly and consistently, which are not necessarily the same. But I think to treat people consistently and fairly are challenges. And that's one of the key lessons, I think, because too many times leaders will think it's important just to give people what they want, don't enforce standards of discipline or rules, regulations, or whatever you have them. Every organization has those things. Sometimes that's, that's hard to do, but if you enforce them fairly and consistently with some foreknowledge, then, uh, then you'll have a lot of success. So I, th- I think I described, we had this thing in the Army called the command climate, which is the environment in which people work and operate. And, you know, there's negative command climates that nobody really espouses to or wants to have. 
and, and I say command climate, that is an army term or a military term, but I think it applies to industry and, and maybe even into higher education. I don't know, but it's a place where during the decision-making process, you have free and open debate and discussion, arguments and counter-arguments. But then once a decision is made, you go off and execute it with full force and vigor. And you operate in an environment that has known rules uh, and regulations, known right and left limits. And then if you operate within those right and left limits, accomplish your mission, you'll do okay. But if you violate one of those limits, then somebody's going to call you to task on it and should. So that, I think, ends up being a positive command climate where you have a mutual respect, but also determination to get the job done. Uh, then there's a comfortable command climate, which has all the same things, except perhaps that if somebody does stray off one of the right or left limits, nothing happens to them. They're not held accountable in some form or fashion. It could be a, just a minor way, just a note or somebody talking to you, or it could be pretty serious. But there's too many times when people tend to go into that comfortable command climate, which is not helpful, particularly when times get tough. So, yeah, I would say foster a positive command climate. Uh, learn about your people. Learn their wants, desires, needs, their problems that they have. Understand them. You may not be able to solve all of them, nor should you, but to be able to recognize them uh, and then treat them fairly and consistently. You know, if anybody knows about leadership, especially in, in service, it's, it's likely you. We, we've seen your accolades and things of that nature. And one of the the most impressive things that I noticed was you're actually the 61st Inspector General of the United States Army. Could you tell us maybe your most memorable experience uh, in that role? Well, I'm not sure memorable doesn't necessarily mean good, but the purpose of the Inspector General, just to, so you understand, the office was founded by General Washington, and a, a, he hired a Prussian general, a guy named von Steuben, to come and establish the discipline, training, readiness, and welfare of the Continental Army back in 1776-77. And we follow those same principles up to this day. The purpose of the Inspector General is to do those things to ensure the discipline, training, readiness, and welfare of the forces maintained. So my responsibilities were to conduct investigations, to conduct assessments, to train the force, train other IGs, and provide a means, a system for soldiers, family members, whomever, to redress their grievances. So those were the four big things that we had to do, provide assistance to soldiers and so forth. So in all of those, there were great successes and things that I'm sure we could have done better, but not for a lack of trying. So, of course, one of the things you see are some of the distasteful aspects of human behavior and that you get called upon to address those and go back to the root causes of the problem and whatever it may be, whether it's uh, personal performance, personal behavior, fraud, waste, abuse, those kinds of things. The most difficult one that I encountered was in the wake of the Abu Ghraib scandals was directed to conduct an assessment of all our detainee operations throughout the world. Now, there, there was another investigation done of Abu Ghraib, which was specific 
and narrowly confined to that. But we looked at how uh, detainee operations were handled worldwide. So it was interesting to see. And of course, you know, you reveal a lot of faults along the way, systemic and non-systemic problems. But you also get to see the work that some people are doing under some amazingly difficult circumstances and how American soldiers adapted to the situation that uh, many weren't expecting. So there's always pluses to that in spite of the resources, the situation and whatever. So that's probably if I had something that characterized my time as the IG, that would be, be one of them. But, you know, there's a lot of other things that we uncovered. You know, your requirement there is to uphold the values and honor of the Army and the officer corps in particular. And so you do have to look at some things you wish you never had to look at. But that's the nature of the job. So I I guess that probably is the most memorable thing I did there. You said you joined the Army to build your career. But did you have any pre-existing ideas or expectations of what serving in the military would be like before you joined? Well, I probably did. It's a long time ago. I think that, you know, my dad served. He was a sergeant in World War II, which he didn't really, he talked a bit about it, but not much. But it wasn't like I grew up in the army, but, you know, I was aware of his service and what it meant to him. But at the time, I had intended to go into the military, either one of the branches for an awful long time. And uh, I I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, and I changed my mind over my young, really young age. And then, and I was actually went into the Marines for a short time in a program they have, but then I was offered an Army ROTC scholarship. So I couldn't turn that down since I was in ROTC anyway. And so that's how I ended up in the Army. But in terms of what expectations did I have and whether they were met, I think is probably the real question is, you know, I kind of expected to be busy, to be dealing with soldiers, to be doing some fun and exciting things, to be working hard, to be outside. And for the most part, those were generally met. But in fact, the reality of it, I I couldn't have uh, even particularly, you know, in the first couple of years expected any of those things, but I was open to whatever was going to come, come my way. I didn't, you know, we had a general knowledge. I think our, we were fortunate, uh, my fellow cadets and I, we had some really good ROTC instructors and those of us who were interested, they really mentored us and they set us up for pretty good appreciation of understanding of what, what life was going to be like when we got into a, into a unit. So I, I think that helped as well. And then, you know, then after you're in for a while, you understand what it's all about and, you know, you understand what's possible, what's not possible. And like I said, you know, I enjoyed what I did for the most part and, you know, just kept on doing it. So one thing that I have found to be pretty rare is that ROTC students, as distinguished as they can be, uh, sometimes they face adversity versus, you know, those who have attended the service colleges. So what advice might you give to ROTC students who are seeking to have just as successful a career in the Army like yourself, who was also an ROTC student? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure your premise is 100% right. I mean, it might be in some cases that the service academy, and it, and it probably depends on, on the service, you know, they may have a little edge and knowledge of the Army and 
and tactics, but they really have not led other soldiers. So that, you know, that's what it boils down to. So I think that if an ROTC cadet really wants to develop themselves, they'll take every advantage of every opportunity to hone and develop their leadership techniques and then learn from others and watch how others make decisions and, and their successes and failures and so forth. But I think that's the big thing that you can do to prepare is, is understand the leadership demands that you're going to confront. And you might get more opportunities to do that at West Point just because it's, you know, 24-7. But uh, there are chances in ROTC. And it's a hard form of leadership. It's peer leadership when you're doing that. So, you know, leading peers can be challenging, but it is the most important thing you can do. And then as quickly as you can, take every opportunity to understand what makes soldiers tick. And it's different for everyone, but come into an appreciation for that, I think, early is very important. And the quicker you recognize that, I think, the more effective leader you will be. So, yeah, I would say focus on the leadership aspects of it. And ROTC, the training will give you a certain amount of fundamentals and rudimentary things that you need to have to get started. Your, your bullet courses, when, when you go to your branch schools, will really give you the tools to be an effective uh, lieutenant. And again, you need to learn all of those and really become a professional. It's like I said, the soldiers want some leader who knows what they're doing. So the place to get all that is when you go through that basic officer uh, leadership course and through ROTC. So I think it's all about leadership and understanding how to lead and motivate soldiers. Shifting to the education side, you've been a visiting professor at the U.S. Army War College. Uh, How has that experience been going? Well, I mean, it's purely enjoyable. I taught there when I was on active duty after I graduated. And when I retired for the second time after I was in Raytheon, I obviously kept touch with people at the War College and a number of friends and people who worked for me were there. And I got the opportunity. So I, I teach two courses on strategic leadership, the distance program for the non-resident phase of the War College. And it's uh, really good. It's a great opportunity for me to stay in touch with the soldiers who by this time are lieutenant colonels and colonels. And, you know, it's a Socratic method of instruction. So there's a lot of good discussion. And and so I get to learn from them and hear what the the situations that they're involved in and how to deal with them and talk through how to uh, confront problems that may arise in the future as senior leaders in the Army. So it's great fun, great I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And so far, the students haven't fired me or anything. So I'm going to keep on doing it. Well, I, w- I would certainly hope not. That I've heard a couple stories from yourself already. Um, shout out to actually your cousin, um, my grandfather, Robert Schmidt. Yep. Uh, yep. He's the one that put us in touch. I yeah. promised him I'd give him a shout out. So Good. Um, no, I'm, you were talking about memorable, memorable things. My deepest memories of growing up are summers my brother and I were able to spend in South Dakota with our cousins. As it turned out, your grandfather and great uncles, I guess, there were three. And then my brother and I we were all within two years of each other. So it was just a natural fit. And we all had a great time. South Dakota is a great place to grow up if you're a young boy back then. Yeah, I've, I've been I've been up to Mitchell once. It's the Corn Palace is great. It's yeah, still there. Well, you know, you had to kind of be 
see, my brother and I, we were from Akron, Ohio, which, you know, was a big industrial rubber capital of the world and all that stuff. And my mother would have been your great grandfather's sister. And they lived out in Letcher, which is really out in the prairie. Uh, so that's where we stayed for the most part when we were there. And, you know, it was it was a farm and, it, you know, it was just awesome. You couldn't hurt each other, couldn't hurt anything. So uh, it was a great place to fish, swim, you know, get in trouble, things like that. It was great. <laughs> that's That's what we love to hear. Getting back on track a little bit, I know you had previously mentioned you've done work with Raygun International. Can you describe your roles in various? Yeah, I was a vice president. Raytheon is a big aerospace and defense company. They, you know, have products, you know, in uh, missiles, rockets, communications. They make a lot of the sensors that are on things like satellites, the U-2, things like that. They make the Patriot missile, uh, a lot of electro-optical kinds of things for sighting systems, for Bradleys and tanks and so forth. So their biggest customer, obviously, is the U.S. government. But they have a, uh, and did have a pretty robust international presence for a few product lines. And when I joined them, they wanted to expand their international footprint and try to grow grow internationally. So I, I came at a good time when they were doing that. So because I had several years in the Middle East, they asked me to take over the business development aspects for the Middle East and North Africa. I knew a lot of the players out there, so that's what I did. So we had forward deployed offices in some of the key countries, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, Jordan, and they work with those militaries for to help either support the Raytheon products that we had already sold them, or of course to buy new stuff. That's what I did. So it was business development and marketing. And of course, not everything can be released to foreign nationals. There's a big bureaucratic problem back here in Washington that you need to go through to get permission to release and the technology transfer and things like that. It's a lot more complicated than it may seem. But it no, it involved a whole lot of trips out to the Middle East and North Africa. But over the period of time I was there, we really started to grow the business significantly. More of our independent business units started to expand their international footprint. And, and now they're doing pretty well internationally. And you know, then when I was in the Washington office, I had a team of people here that helped expedite all those uh, release procedures, work with the various product lines to help them go to market. Moving on to baseball, when you were growing yeah. up in Ohio, uh, were you much of an Indians fan? And uh, oh, yeah. did you ever have the chance to see Bob Feller playing uh, in Cleveland? I don't think I did. I, I, I think I was nine years old when I went to my first Indians game, which probably was the year after he retired. But I knew of him because everybody talked about him all the time. And, you know, he was in the Hall of Fame and, you know, he was still an icon there. But I did meet him. And it would have been, I'm trying to think, 2005, perhaps, when they dedicated the World War II Memorial here in Washington. And there were a number of different uh, dinners and celebrations and so forth coming around. And he happened to be at one of them. And that I was there, Raytheon sponsored one of these to honor the World War II veterans. And he was there. 
so I went and told him that, you know, I was an Indians fan from the, probably the minute I was born and it, you know, honored to meet him and so on and so forth and shook his hands and he thanked me for my service, yada, yada, yada. But it, you know, it was pretty neat. And what I remember, in addition to just being the, being with Bob Feller, was the size of his hands are huge. So I could see he could probably hold that baseball in a number of different ways to make it do all sorts of things that nobody else could imagine. And plus throw it really hard. But uh, no, so I'm still I'm still an Indian fan now since here in Washington, we have a National League team. So we we support the Nationals. I don't have that as a problem because they're my National League team and the Indians, the Guardians, they're my American League team and always will be. And I've seen them play when they come here every now and then. Yeah, that's that's very cool. So you still watch a lot of baseball then, I'm guessing? Oh, yeah. And we go, we have partial season tickets here with the Nats and three of our four grandkids are here and they all are baseball fans. So they go whenever they can. Yeah, and that's a great stadium. So if you're ever here in Washington, you want to go to a game, let me know. Yeah, that's that's great. Did you get a chance to see any playoff games when they won the World Series just a couple of years ago? We certainly did, to include the World Series. That's very cool. Yeah, two games of the World Series, two of the four they played here. And of course, they won when they were playing in Houston, so we didn't get to see that. And uh, I wasn't here, but my wife took our grandkids to the uh, All-Star game when it was played, which was pretty cool as well. So it's nice being in a major league city like that. Yeah, I know that's something that I wish I had, but yep. we could talk about baseball for hours. But, Paul, uh, we want to thank you very much for being on the American Valor podcast today. You've been an amazing guest, some great insight and great experiences. And again, thank you very much. Well, thank you. And I'd like to commend the work you do and congratulate the seven award winners for 2021. Uh, it's really a great program that you have. It's kind of unique, I think. But being able to recognize people who make those kind of contributions is really something. And, and my congratulation goes to you and those Valor Award winners. And yes. I wish you continued success. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. By the time this video is out, uh, our award winners will be holding their cherished awards. But yes, we want to thank them very much as well. And we want to also thank our listeners. Thanks very much. To our listeners, this concludes this episode of the American Valor Podcast. This conversation is brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Indians. Please feel free to leave your comments in the comments section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ActiveValor Award. You can engage with the foundation at ActiveValorAward.org. There you can learn about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast and more. For Blake Schmida, Leo Manchetti, and everyone at the American Valor podcast, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.